Thursday Night Tailgate, where the spotlight is always on the positive. Tune in Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time to hear your favorite NFL legends, players, and coaches sharing their stories. Now back to Chris and Bob. I wouldn't joke about anything else that happened to you tonight. All right, now back in making his 11th appearance with us here on Thursday Night Tailgate is Steelers legend, one of our all-time favorite guests and TNT Guest Hall of Famer, Rocky Blyer. Let me remind you about Rocky's background. He's from Appleton, Wisconsin. At Xavier High School, he starred in football and basketball. He was a three-time All-State selection at running back and won all-conference honors at linebacker and defensive back. Played his college ball at Notre Dame, where he helped them win the 1966 National Championship and he was team captain in 1967. Drafted in the 16th round by the Steelers in 1968. During his rookie season, he was also drafted into the Army and went to fight for our country over in Vietnam. Was awarded the Bronze Star and Purple Heart after being injured in the line of duty. Rejoined the Steelers in 1971, spent the next two years working and working his way back and regaining a, a, a roster spot after he had actually been waived two times. Came back and was ultimately a part of four Super Bowl championship teams with the Steelers in the 70s. Retired at, after the 1980 season. Over the course of his career, he rushed for nearly 3,900 yards and added another 1,300 receiving yards. Scored 25 touchdowns. Averaged 4.2 yards per carry. And he has a wonderful one-man show about his life called simply The Play that we highly recommend. You can go watch it online at broadwayondemand.com. We are thrilled Rocky is back with us again tonight here on Thursday Night Tailgate. Hey, Rock, Chris, and Bob, thanks for coming back on the show. Welcome back, Rocky. Hey, hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Eleven times. This is me. Oh, just seems like a couple. <laughs> well, we are thankful for all 11. I promise you that. Rocky, I want to start our time with you by talking about your play. Uh, it, it really is fantastic, and you're, you are certainly one of the all-time great storytellers and you do such a wonderful job taking us through your life and and what it was like and you and your family's bar and the characters that were in it and and uh, sort of all the way through you know the rest of your life fantastic stuff kudos to you well thank you thank you very much um so we've been well let me say i think the, the first performance we did was almost five years ago um at a, a extravaganza one night only uh, the play with Rocky Blyer here in Pittsburgh. And then uh, then people liked it. And so we brought it back again and again and again. And so now I'm very fortunate that it's uh, on Broadway on demand. Somebody said, you're going to go to Broadway one day. I didn't know it was going to be Broadway <laughs> on demand, but <laughs> anyway, um, it's available to the, to, to the general public out there. So I hope they enjoy it. Uh, and just uh, as an overview of that, of that uh, play, it really takes place in three bars as we uh, as we navigate my life. Uh, of course, the first bars where I grew up and the characters, as you had made mention, and takes us through Notre Dame. And the second bar when I come to Pittsburgh and uh, and, and into the military, and then coming back to Pittsburgh. And then the third bar is really my home bar where I sit and reflect on what made the Steelers as successful as they were during that period of time um, and the people and, and, uh, and uh, some of the games. Um, but anyway, uh, we've had uh, great reviews on it. And, um, and so I just hope that uh, those who are interested in it, uh, Steeler fans specifically who are out there, uh, will go to Broadway on demand and uh, 
uh, take a look at it. So, Rock, what was it like putting that play together, you know, getting with, together with Gene Collier and, and really kind of putting all the pieces of your life together in a, in a one-man play like that? Was that was that challenging for you? Was it was it easy to get up there and tell tell your story? Like I say, you're one of the great storytellers of all time. What was it like? So, for, you know, it, no, it wasn't. It wasn't very uncomfortable about doing that. Well, I, you know, I, I think in the beginning, what I had thought, and it, you know, like any any I any anything that takes place, there's always somebody that that has to have an idea, you know, that goes, and you know, so I came up with this idea. Actually. I, I was reading a book that had been uh, recently produced or came out maybe five or six years ago. Is about the Steeler uh, is about the Steelers and the Steeler history and the Rooney family. And all of a sudden, there were stories in that book that I really I didn't really know about. And I thought, oh, how nice would it be to be able to incorporate some of those stories uh, and kind of do a monologue of of, of that. And so uh, I talked to some people, and obviously. All it takes is somebody goes, hey, that's a pretty good idea. Maybe we should explore that. <laughs> so we go down that line, and eventually uh, it gets to a point where um, we, I get some people who are serious, and uh, and uh, Gene Collier, who uh, uh, is a wonderful writer here in Pittsburgh, and uh, and he wrote uh, a, and he wrote a play called The Chief about Mr. Rooney, which was very successful and played here. Um, at the public theater for many, many years. Um, and so he came on board and I was talking to him about doing the Steeler play. And he said, hey, now all those stories have been taken. Everybody knows, tells those stories. No, I think there's more to your story. And so that became, that became the impetus. And then we had sat and talked, uh, about, about the bar and the characters and the stories that I knew. And it was really, um, Gene who had kind of, put them all together in this format uh, over a period of time. So when we were, when we were going through this process, and, you know, and I was thinking, okay, fine. Well, you know, I've had the, I felt somewhat comfortable being on stage of giving speeches of being in front of an audience, you know, that's part of it. But then it was like, oh, now I have to memorize lines. I mean, now it's, you know, now it's not, somebody said, well, it's your story, so you can just make it up. Yeah, I said, I know, but Gene doesn't want me to make it up. <laughs> so he wants me to use, <laughs> you know, what he wrote. And then, uh, um, so that became the, uh, that became, it was very interesting for me to go through that whole process of um, memorizing uh, the, the stories and then putting them in, in, in place and, uh, and making sure you got, um, because there's all those writers, I should say, you know, have all in the windows that lead from one story to another. And if you don't quite make it, it doesn't quite fit. And so you want to do it justice. And um, uh, so it uh, it uh, took us uh, it took us a while and uh, uh, to do it. And so, uh, but I'm glad that it was done and we got it done. It was a great experience for me and a great learning curve. Um, and then, uh, as, as, as I found out, much enjoyable. By audiences who would who would uh, were there um and understood the background and and, and the, the story thereafter hey, rock i i also love your one man's opinion videos that uh people can go see on your instagram page official rocky blyer and i gotta get your opinion 
what happened to our Steelers? I mean, 11 and 0 to almost a, a, a complete collapse there at the end of the season outside of the one half against the Colts, but uh, embarrassingly get bounced out against the Browns. What's your opinion? What happened? Well, basically, I think my opinion basically was this, is that the beginning of the season. So we've got, we've, there was an unknown, I mean, with COVID. Unknown. Uh, are we going to camp? Not going to camp. How many weeks? Are we going to have an exhibition season? No exhibition season. So it kept changing um, day after day, week after week, you know, just uh, about time spent. So when you have this uncertainty, at least in the beginning, or time spent practicing, unlike years before we, where you had, you know, two weeks before the first exhibition game, you had four, you know, four exhibition games. And so there was a methodology in how you put your pieces together to get that team together. And then, then the first part of the season, all of a sudden that's not the same. So in my perspective is that the Steelers have a veteran team at the beginning of the season. They have a defense that a year ago or over the last three years improved and they got the right players. And all of a sudden a year ago, they kind of melt together secondary in their secondary. Um, and in their linebacker court. So, so now coming into the season, and my perspective is that, okay, they got a veteran team, an experienced defense that's coming in. So whether they, they, they miss practice, they're not playing, they're, they've been there together for a period of time. So it's easier for them to gel in an uncertain time than it is for some teams that are um, started off poorly, you know, lost games, uh, trying to find the right combination, um, get some new players coming in, some free agents coming in, some trades that are taking place. And, you know, and so you look at that um, uh, Eastern Division uh, in the beginning, we talked about Philadelphia and the Giants and so on. I mean, they're losing, losing, losing. All of a sudden, we started to win. Now, in those first 11 games, and let's be honest, there were problems three, maybe four games that the Steelers should have lost. Not through the grace of God or a play here or a mistake by the other opponents. They didn't. Now they have momentum. And for a fan base, all of a sudden, you know, we're starting to win. We're winning some more. So our expectations become uh, greater than maybe the reality of the team. So we get to, now I think, that out of a 16-game season, it's like four quarters. You know, your first four games become very important. In a normal season, and I'm saying this, in a normal season, you get four exhibitions. Your key personnel really don't get a chance to play game-wise. You know, maybe that third game, you know, a bit little in the third game, and then maybe a half in the fourth game. So when you start the season, those first four games are almost like exhibitions trying to meld that team together in a game situation, which is different than practice, which is different than scrimmages. It's a game situation. So teams all of a sudden get caught in this transition. Well, if you can get out of that at three and one, four, four and oh, you're, you, you got a good basis and a good start. Then the next four games, okay, you're kind of, okay, what kind of team do we have? You're starting to melt. So if you go 
500 there, you know, now you're at six and two. The next four games, you better start the second part of the season. That momentum, that growth, you know, becomes very important in where you're going to go. And then the last four games going into the, into the playoffs are when people say, hey, that team's finally come of age, or that team has gelled, or you got to look out for this team. It's really coming. So there's kind of that built belief. Just, I didn't think the Steelers ever got there. I think they were on, uh, they were, they were a stagnant straight line across uh, their capability. They never got that momentum or belief. And all of a sudden they hit uh, Washington. I mean, against Washington, Washington comes in and beats them. And, so they play the Bills, I think, the next week and find the Bills. I'm, I'm going, I'm watching that. I'm watching the Bills of Washington, see what they did. And then all of a sudden, um, people started to key in on what the Steelers' offense was all about specifically. I, you know, they um, heard about, you guys were talking about the running game, something that they did not establish at all. You know, all they don't have a running back. Oh, they don't have a big running back. Oh, they don't have this personnel. No, it doesn't start there. It starts in the offensive line. When you have a a, a passing offense, as, as the Steelers had, it seems to be uh, appropriate in today's game. But when 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 commentaries go, wow, we got to watch Ben. You know, he releases the ball in two seconds. He releases the ball in less than two seconds. You know, it's a quick release. So. As an offensive line, you know, your blocking methodology changes. Now, all you do is punch, drop back, punch, because the ball's gone. Unlike having to contain or, or maintain or sustain a constant block coming out in a running game. So I blame it on that mindset and the fundamentals of establishing a running game. Not that uh, Connors is not a bad runner. We had... You know, good people the, the year before that sustained the, 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 the team when Ben was out, um, and we established a, a, a run. But now all of a sudden it's changed. Ben doesn't get hurt. Um, and, you know, you become, in my opinion, stagnant and nothing takes place. So that's the combination. And they just ran into uh, people who, who pressed uh, when the Steelers dipped at the end of the season, and they find themselves on, on the downside. So there, that's my analogy. <laughs> Thank you for that. Bob, question for Rock? It's always great to speak Pardon? with you, Rock. Yeah, I, I want to take you back to um, how you arrived at Notre Dame. Um, maybe talk to our listeners about were there other choices and how influential was Parsegian in, uh, in putting you over the top there? Well, you know, it was kind of, it, for me, for me, it was kind of interesting because we're going back in time. And let's just say that we're going back in time <clears throat> into the 60s. So I'm coming out of high school, 1964. Um, you, Notre Dame was not a, a, a powerhouse. You know, it had not been a powerhouse, you know, for the last 10 years. Um, um, and uh, so they were just kind of, you know, coming of, 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 of age. They, so they, they weren't on a radar. I mean, there was Notre Dame, 
and I understood Notre Dame, not that we were big Notre Dame fans, um, you know, growing up, we weren't kind of big anybody fans, but coming out of the state of Wisconsin, so the University of Wisconsin was kind of, uh, you know, a prominent, uh, you know, football team at that time, 62, they had just, I think it was 62, they had just gone to the Rose Bowl, um, and uh, so they were, they were kind of, you know, big in our, in our lives at, at that time. Um, so, you know, when I had, uh, um, because of the success we had in high school, you know, you get recognized for being a part of that team and, you know, and then people become interested and scouts become interested. And so you got some, um, some inquiries and mostly about Big Ten schools. You know, you get a letter from Michigan or Michigan State, Minnesota, uh, Indiana, you know, the possibilities of coming to their schools wasn't as big as it is today. Everybody knows who's coming out of high school and, and all the information that's available. That wasn't necessarily the case. Notre Dame was uh, was interested, at least from uh, the uh, assistant coach scout uh, that uh, had had that area. And uh, and so um, we had talked to them, and they, they would be willing, you know, to come and, and, and take a visit at the school. Probably the best piece of advice I got was from uh, the assistant coach at Notre Dame who was recruiting that area. Uh, and it, uh, and he said to me, he said, you know, you're going to get a lot of scholarships or offers to go to different schools. And they're going to invite you to come to the campus. And every time you come to a campus, they're going to roll out the red carpet naturally uh, and show you a good time. So by the time you go to four or five, six different schools, whatever it may be, and you have to then make a decision of where you're going to go. All of a sudden, it kind of becomes all messed up in one. Who and what programs are the best or who do you like or so on? He said, you know, he said, my advice was choose three schools that you would like to graduate from. Not necessarily play football, but graduate from. He said, because you never know what's going to happen in this game, injury-wise and so on. And I thought that made eminent sense to me, only because I had no desire uh, to go to any other school um, outside. You know, I didn't care about Michigan or Minnesota. Wisconsin, I felt I had an obligation because uh, they were in touch with me. Notre Dame, obviously. And then uh, there was a family friend who'd gone to Boston College. And and they said, well, Boston College would be interested in you. And I thought, oh, okay, fine. And I went out to Boston College first, and I loved it. Boston. Not necessarily Boston College, but Boston. <laughs> I loved it mm-hmm. because here's this little room from the Midwest. <laughs> All of a sudden, you're in Boston. And wow, that was great. And uh, then I went to uh, uh, Notre Dame in Wisconsin last. And, you know, and Wisconsin was kind of too big for me, whatever in my mind. It was just, you know, what I saw was just. It was kind of large, and I didn't feel comfortable there. I went to Notre Dame, and obviously, you know, I felt comfortable there. It wasn't a big school. I mean, there was only 3,800 kids at the time um, that was at that school, but it had a great reputation of Notre Dame and what it was in the past and so on. But as I tell people, this becomes very important. Uh, as a good Catholic boy, I did what every good Catholic boy did, and that was go to church and get on your knees and pray for guidance and direction. 
And then, like every good Catholic boy, I did what my mother wanted, and that was go to Notre Dame. <laughs> and so I ended up at Notre Dame. <laughs> but Eric Parsegian had just come in, so Eric Parsegian was a, was the brand new coach. Mm-hmm. Didn't know anything about him uh, at the time, except they came from Northwestern. That was it. Um, and uh, so obviously he made a big impact on that whole program um, and the, the years he was there the, and, the, and, the, and the winning teams that he produced. And your rookie year in 68 with the Steelers, Rockies, uh, it was a team under Bill Austin, only won a couple games, but uh, I was just wondering, how did they treat rookies at that time, and was there any players on that team? I know those guys like Dick Hoke and Roy Jefferson on that team. Were there any guys that kind of took you under their wing and uh, helped you indoctrinate to the NFL? Well, I think uh, yeah, it, it, actually, kind of, yes. Paul Martin. Remember Paul Martin? Paul Martin yes. was a defensive uh, Paul Martin was a defensive back. Um, and um, uh, he was the number one pick out of the University of Pittsburgh uh, and uh, and kind of captain of the team or captain of the team at, the, at that time. And so, uh, and so Paul, Paul uh, along with Dick Hoke, and Dick was, of course, a senior running back um, uh, when I was there. Um, and, and, you know, and then so you make the team and uh, we, then you become part of the team. So. There was always, uh, and it was, you know, it was interesting. I, 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 I say this about about uh, Paul Martha is that one of the rituals uh, in training camp was that the first day of training camp with the veterans coming to camp, the rookies had been there for you know a week or so beforehand, and then all of a sudden all the veterans come in that first day. They, uh, the veteran, take the uh, number one draft choice and introduce him to the rest of the veterans, so to speak. We go to a place called the 19th Hole, which was the drinking place for all the, the veterans. No rookie was allowed to go to the 19th Hole, except for this first uh, chance. And uh, so Mike Taylor of the University of Southern California was our number one pick. They asked him, hey. I want you to meet the rest of the veterans. We're going to the 19th hole. Join us, and uh, uh, you know, and we'll have a couple beers. Mike declined. Oh, well, Paul Martha can't force him to go. So he goes to Ernie Rupel, who was a second round draft choice out of Arkansas. He says, uh, Ernie, why don't you come? Why, why don't you join us? And Ernie goes, oh, big old farm boy. He said, oh, I don't drink, you know, and so on. I I, I really don't want to go. And he turns. And I'm the only guy that's standing there. And he goes, okay, Blyer, you're coming with us. So I'm like a little lap dog. I go, oh, okay, fine. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me be a part of this team. <laughs> and so, so I go I go to the 19th hole with them. And then I get a chance for my first time to meet all the veterans. Part of the indoctrination of that 19th hole was, you know, everybody would buy you a beer. And, of course, had to drink it. And, um, and we had a, a drinking contest. Well, I didn't know it was a drinking contest, but Bill Saul, who was our middle linebacker out of Butler, Pennsylvania, uh, was a big, rangy um, middle linebacker. And so he sat down across from me and he said, oh, you being a 
Notre Dame grad. I'm sure, you know, as a young fellow, you, you know, you've had drinking games to, that you've been in. So we're going to have a little drinking contest right here. And I go, oh, oh, okay, fine. He said, yeah, so here, pour yourself a beer. And I'll pour myself a beer. Now, you know how it goes. I count to three. We pick it up. We'll chug it. And the first one puts his glass down, wins. And I go, oh, okay, fine. So he goes, all right, on three. One, two. Oh, he said, just a minute. Um, I'm not going to use any hands, okay? One, two, three. And he bends down, opens his mouth, picks up the whole glass in his mouth, and drains oh my. right down his throat before I could even get it halfway spilled on my lap. And I thought, oh, <laughs> this is not going to be a fun evening. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was my indoctrination <laughs> into getting and uh, being part of the, the veteran group. <laughs> Rock, you know, if you look back, um, the Steelers hired Chuck Noll as head coach 52 years ago yesterday. And wow. Yeah. And um, it seems to, I seem to recall a, a pretty uh, famous story about Chuck's sort of first practice and assessing the team and the talent level uh, that was right. there in 69. What do you remember about Chuck's first practice? <laughs> that, that story, that's right. So he comes in, we got the first practice, first meeting, actually. It was and the first meeting of the new coach. And uh, so we get up in front and he said, uh, he said, gentlemen, he said, uh, over the last five months and I've been your new coach, I've watched every film of every practice, of every game that you partook in over the last three years. And I can tell you why you have been losing. You're just not any good. You have no discipline. You have no techniques. You have no basis. You're not big enough, fast enough. And by the time this training camp is over with, most of you probably will not be here. Not that you're not good people. You're all good people. The problem is you've just not made a commitment to get any better. You've not made a commitment to raise the standards. You've not made a commitment to excellence. In some cases, some of you just might not have the talent to be able to perform on this level. And if you don't, then I'll have to find some people who will. That was his introductory remarks. <laughs> and it's, you know, and it, it came to be, came to be true. Uh, and so as he looked at, I can remember this story, too, a little Andy Russell who played linebacker for us and uh, was captain of the team, was an all-pro linebacker, even though we had only won two games my rookie year. But Chuck comes in, so he invites Andy uh, to come and, and have a meeting. And so Andy tells the story that he was waiting for Chuck to say, hey, listen, our team's not very good. You know, you're the only star on this defense. You're an all-pro linebacker. He said, so, you know, I'm, you know I, I want to congratulate you. That's what Andy did, but that's not Chuck's style. And so he walks in, down. Chuck says, uh, you know, I don't like the way you play. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to change the way you play. Now, you might not be all pro, but you're going to be a better linebacker and make this team a better team. Because what made you an all pro linebacker is that you took chances. You, you, you try to guess, try to cover for other people. I can't allow that to happen. You're going to play your position, play it the way, read your keys, and don't worry about what else is taking place. That's not your responsibility. We'll be a better football 
team and you will be a better football player uh, given this. So <laughs> Andy walked out what he thought was going to be a great pat on the back, like, holy crap. <laughs> I didn't get the recognition I thought I would. But that was Chuck, and Chuck was all about that, your responsibility, your responsibility within the team reading your keys and not worrying about what everybody else does. So if you just take care of what you need to take care of um, and read the right keys, uh, then everybody will be, you know, everybody will be fine. Everybody will be on the same, on the same page. And, and, uh, and so ultimately that's what he built and ultimately got the personnel to be able to play that and, and play that way. Iraq, when I was looking back over the rosters and the coaches that were there in the 70s, you had, you know, defensive coordinators, you know, Bud Carson, George Perlis, those guys were defensive coordinators. I never saw anybody listed with the Steelers as an offensive coordinator until we get into the 80s. Was that, was that Chuck and Terry? Were they, was Chuck calling the plays until he trusted Terry to be able to call his own? Yeah, basically, I mean, basically Chuck's philosophy was that unlike today, so, we say offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator. I mean, there's a certain there's a certain responsibility that goes with that title. Do we did we have an offensive coordinator? Yes. Did we have a defensive coordinator? Yeah, as you had made mention, um, Bud Carson, you know, was that. But in Chuck's mind, it was the the defensive coordinator wasn't was the only was the person that reported to Chuck. So when you put the the game plan together. It was defensively. So you got the secondary, you got the linebacker coach, you got the defensive line coach, um, and you met. Okay. And you guys put your defensive plan together. Offense, um, is that, uh, uh, we would put the, you, you would meet and then report to me and, uh, and, 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 and tell me what the offensive game plan is. And Chuck would just meet with those guys. So, um, it wasn't, yeah, so it, it wasn't as if the the power of the offense or defensive coordinator did not exist back then. And so Chuck basically, uh, the process was this, was that, okay, tell me your game plan. And he would sit and listen. And if he had a question, all he'd ask is why. Why? If you could explain why you're doing this formation or this play or this approach, then he'd go, okay, fine. And then it, that would become part of, um, you know, part of the defense or the offense for, for the team. Offensively, Chuck did call the play. Um, but we didn't have, I should say this. He called, he, Terry called the play. The quarterback called the plays. Chuck would run plays in now and then, uh, with substitute players. Uh, he would call the first three plays of the game as we set up the game and then, it was up to the quarterback uh, to call the rest. There was no head, headphones. Uh, there was nothing written uh, 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 on your arm, you know, or something. Uh, it was how you best assessed the situation at that time. Uh, and it was up to you uh, to, uh, uh, to to call the plays and uh, or the options or whatever it was. So from a, from a, as we view it today, that offense or defensive coordinator who's calling plays offensively in the ears of the, of the um, uh, quarterback um, and, and or defensive plays into the middle linebacker who was ever calling those plays, that did not exist uh, 
you know, as back then. Um, so it was pretty much up to uh, um, up to Terry to you know call the plays during the during the during the game. Rocky, we we all know about the great you know teams that won the four Super Bowls in the seventies, um, but I feel like nineteen seventy six was the one that got away. I mean, you and Franco rushed for over a thousand yards that season. And over the last nine games. The defense only allowed over nine games. They allowed 22 right. points. They pitched five shutouts and you and Franco get hurt against the Colts in the, in the division round. And then the team goes on to lose to the Raiders and the, and the AFC championship. But if you guys don't get hurt, is that a fifth ring? Is that the one that got away? Well, I mean, that was, you know, as I think if, as people look back at, at that one specific season. Um, and especially Steeler fans were so on. And as we're talking about the one that, that, you know, that got away was the one that, that overcame, you know, great obstacles. I think, um, 76, I'm trying to think, did we lose four of our first five games? Yeah, um, that's right. We, we started out one and four. First, yeah. Yeah. We were one and four out of, out of those first five games. Not, I'm just going to put a little aside. Okay. Uh, and that little aside is that uh, in game five, no, in game six, I think, maybe game five it was, um, we're playing the Cleveland Browns. Now, everybody thinks that there's this great rivalry between the Steelers and the Browns and this great hatred that takes place, not so much in my case, okay? I do, I do, I have a very warm spot in my heart for the Cleveland Browns. Why? Well, because of the fact that in that game against Cleveland, up in Cleveland Stadium in 1976, Joe Turkey Jones, their defensive defensive end, uh, graciously sacked Bradshaw. And not only sacked him, then piled drove him into the turf and left him flapping like a fish out of water on top of that turf. Well, they carry them off on a stretcher. And in comes our backup quarterback. was a rookie by the name of Mike Krushek out of Boston College. And he takes over. All of a sudden, we got to change the whole game plan. And we have to start running the ball. So we start running the ball offensively. And in and having the great defense, as you had made mention, and in those remaining nine games, we shut out five of those opponents, allowed, what, 23, 24 points scored, minus yards rushing. You know, it was like three and out. And, and the offense was just run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. And because of that, I gained 1,000 yards rushing that season along with Franco, to become the second set of running backs in the history of the NFL to gain a 1,000 yards rushing that year, which uh, then got us into the playoffs. And we went to the playoffs. We went to play Baltimore Colts in Baltimore. And in that game, both Franco and I got hurt. I got what they called the turf toe. Um, and um, Franco got his ribs banged up. Um, but we beat the Colts badly. 
there was like a 36-point spread, you know, and so on. Um, but the interesting thing about that game, just to put it in perspective, is that now we're down in the locker room after the game, see who we're going to play um, in the channel, what Oakland was going to do against the opponent, who were, were we going to play. And then all of a sudden there was a cut-in on the television. Uh, and that cut-in was a Piper Cub playing. It had been stuck into the upper deck of the Baltimore field as it tried to touch, touch down on the field, and it couldn't pull itself out and crash into the end zone um, of, of, the, of the stadium. And all I could think of, and we rushed out, and we see the plane sticking out there, and the only thing I could think about it, what happened if this was a close game? Or, or Baltimore was winning. None of those fans would have left, but they all left in the fourth quarter to get out of there. And um, and so that was the that was the excitement of that game, or the tragedy of that game. But we, then we play uh, Oakland the following week, and I couldn't run, and Franco couldn't breathe, and so we were out of that uh, out of the game. And 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 Oakland had a great team. I mean, they they, they had a great team, and then beat us. Uh, uh, in that game out there, but it could have been um, because of the dynamics that we had, because of um, the momentum that we had, and I think that we would have beaten uh, Oakland because part of it, part of it was not everybody was healthy, you know. So there wasn't any running game. We we put in an offense that no one kind of believed in. I mean, we didn't have Bradshaw to make things happen. So um, I mean, we put a, it's a one back, two tight end offense. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're trying to run the ball as best and, uh, that you possibly could. And, and so it just didn't work. But it was a, it was a great team that could have been uh, if everything was healthy. Bob, one more for Rock before we let him go? Uh, sure, Rock. I, I mean, you mentioned Franco Harris, and you've played with many Hall of Famers, and he happens to be probably one of my favorite players ever. Um, and I think many people remember him, obviously, for the Immaculate Reception, but few, few, I guess you have to remember that this is a guy that's in the Hall of Fame and had multi, multi-thousand-year seasons. Uh, seemed to me he did in a very quiet way, unassuming. Uh, is there anything else that maybe our listeners should know about him, Rock? No, I think, I mean, at that time, you know, coming in, he was a very uh, – um, he, he was quiet. He, you know, he didn't say a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And I can remember when he first, I, you know, I mean, so part of it was, part of it, I can remember his, when he came in as a rookie. Um, and so I was trying to make the team, you know, as well and uh, hanging around in 72. And so he came in and came in late because they had the uh, college all-star game against the uh, defending champion, you know, NFL team. Uh, and so he was like two weeks coming in late. And, um, and so, you know, and, and so I'm judging him by my own reaction, you know, and my own reaction was, you know, trying to prove, make sure you're, you know, you're doing what you, they ask you to do. If you're going to hit the two hole, you hit the two hole, if you're going to hit the four hole, you hit the four hole, you know, and then all of a sudden, but Franco's not that way. Franco's kind of a really laid back kind of guy and, you know, and he's a big guy. And, and, and so he, he doesn't hit the two hole. He comes up and he looks at the two hole and well, he might take it off into the four hole, you know, um, and, or, in, 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 and so I said, I said, I said to him one time, I said, Franco, Franco, 
you know, mind you, you kind of hit, you know, you kind of hit the hole. And he said, oh, not necessarily. He said, you don't know whether that hole's going to be there or not by the time you get into a game. So if it's not there, then you got to be able to pick where you're going to go. And that's the way he had played, you know, at uh, Penn State, but that was his mindset. And, but I'll tell you this, I mean, his work ethic was great. Every, every play that he ran in practice, in practice, he would run 40 yards, 40 yards, 40 yards, 40 yards, come back, run 40 yards, 40 yards, 40 yards. That was just his mindset, um, which proved to be well when he played. I mean, he just never stopped. And, um, and, you know, and people say, well, he ran out of bounds all the time. He ran out of bounds. You know, and whether he ran out of bounds was, I think, the fact is that he might have only missed two games, four games at the most in his whole career because of injuries. You know, he just wasn't going to take that beating, and it wasn't necessary. So, uh, you know, he was a, a, a great player, a great asset, obviously, a great leader, um, and, uh, uh, and, and, and a great friend um, uh, over all these years. Brock, before we let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, like the play, uh, and be able to follow you, whether it's uh, online or it's over social media. Well, yes, online. You can go to, <laughs> thank you for the plug, you can go to rockyflyer.com. Which got all that stuff on on uh, on the on, on, um, on the play um, and and what is happening within my life and uh, social media. Um, you know, I should give you. I'm on Facebook um, and uh, I'm on Twitter, um, so uh, you can uh, you can see me there, and it brings you up to date of what's what's taking place and so on. Now, Rock, we can't have you on and do a segment with you without giving a shout-out to our good friend Gretchen Bierenbaum, G-Money. She's, uh, she's there <laughs> helping right. as well, right? Well, so, so that was my question. Now, Gretchen, that, for your listeners out there, Gretchen, Gretchen is a, a, a dear friend who happens to also do all my media. So when you ask me where you can find out about me, is that Gretchen is the one that places my Twitter accounts or my my Facebook <laughs> and, uh, uh, <laughs> and so on. It. So, uh you yeah, thank you for uh, for uh, for bringing her up, and so it's a shout out to Gretchen if you're listening. Thanks, girl. That's you right. Make me look smart. Yeah. <laughs> Rock, it's always a privilege for us to get to spend some time with you and have you as part of the show and have you as part of our guest hall of fame. You're a, you're a wonderful human <laughs> being. We can't thank you enough for all the great things that you've done for the show. Hey, thanks, Chris, Bob. Uh, it's always a pleasure anytime. Give a call. We'll be here. We'll talk Thank again. Thank you, Rock. Take care. Stay safe. Right. All the Thank best you. to you and Thanks, your family, guys. Rock. We'll yeah. take care of you as well. That's a great Rocky Blyer, Bob. And I, I tell you, you know, getting to spend time with Rocky is always a huge thrill for both of us. And, you know, I mean, I, I can't give him enough credit going all the way back. As you remember, Rocky was the second guest ever on this show. So for, yeah. for someone like Rocky to to come on a show with uh, that he never heard of with two guys he never heard of uh, is part of the reason why he's in our Hall of Fame, not just you know for the fact that now he's been on the show 11 times. Like you said uh, earlier, one of the great storytellers ever and the play, again, broadwayondemand.com. I can't recommend it highly enough. I've watched it a couple of times now. It's, uh, it's great. And before I lose my train of thought, Bob, as Rocky talked about in that 1976 season when Bradshaw got hurt and Mike Kruzek and Mike, uh, I went to the University of Central Florida. Mike was actually our head coach for uh, the time that I was down there. 
But uh, he mm-hmm. came in, in in that 76 season, Bob. And again, they go 6-0 and with Kruzek as, as the quarterback. Over those six games, he is 51 of 85 for 758 yards. Six games, 758 yards. Zero touchdowns and three interceptions. And they go 6-0 wow. with him at quarterback. <laughs> that tells you how much they changed the game plan to be a running uh, running attack. Unbelievable that they did That's that. That's great. But, He's, uh, yeah, you know, so, Rocky is, uh, he joined us on the TV side, Chris. And, you know, the amazing thing about him, when you talk to him, first of all, for a half hour, it seems like 10 minutes. And and many of this, we, we talked to him so much, and very few of his stories are repeats. He's got so many, and he tells them in such different entertaining ways, but uh, we didn't even get to his off-the-field stuff. And again, every time we have him on the show, we can go a ton of different ways with him. And uh, obviously one of our favorite and most respected guests ever. Exactly right. All right, when Bob and I come back, uh, we'll be turning on our Thursday night tailgate spotlight on the positive. Here are two more great stories about guys out there making a positive impact on their community. 